0: With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.
1: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com Acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com Acast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves
0: This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests, so please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people.
1: The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging.
2: Meanwhile, they all jump into their cars and they're after me. So at one point, I remember I I looked in the rear vision and I remembered thinking, is this really happening? This is like a movie. And I kept thinking, they're chasing you. You know, they're going to catch you.
0: We're going back to the stick-ups this week on Australian True Crime with Arthur Balkus. He's a criminal activist, actor, public speaker and proud father of two. But before he was all of these things, Arthur was a very promising young law student and a flamboyant armed robber. Arthur featured on an episode of the SBS show Insight in 2019, in which the various guests were invited to speak on the topic of Remorse. I watched it before speaking to Arthur and it definitely informed our conversation. It was episode 19 from that year, if you'd like to go back and find it on their demand service. We begin our conversation by delving into Arthur's childhood and the incidents that germinated the seed of discontent in his mind.
2: Look, in my case, I didn't wake up one morning and say, oh, I'll go and rob a TAB. (laughs) No, I didn't.
0: Because some blokes come from families that are into crime some blokes come from neighborhoods that are into crime and all that but you're a different you're a different specimen
2: yeah yeah that's right and and it's why the judge was particularly dirty on me and said I have to make an example of you because I have the people you just described coming through the court and you have to feel some compassion but you you were in the fourth year of an arts law degree so yeah a, l- a little bit different however there are some commonalities i always say to people a lot of crime dysfunction whatever you want to call it in people commences when you particularly when you're young and if it starts at a young age it's almost certain to impact your life as you're growing up and if you don't find a way to change those behavior patterns the thinking patterns then it stands to reason you're likely to live them out as an adult and sometimes for your whole life and it can be so costly to you and to others the process for me that allowed me to have that sort of gumption to go and do something like that. I mean, an armed robbery is is pretty serious, right? And a lot of people have said to me, wow, you were so like almost brave to go and do that, bold to do that. And in prison terms, we call that dash. If you've got some dash, some courage. And armed robbers uh, were kind of looked upon as, you know, tough men. Now, the process for me started when I was a kid. I grew up well, from the age of six when my father suffered a serious uh, accident in a factory, signed his rights away because he couldn't speak English and there were no migrant interpreters in those days. And overnight, my family became poor and I grew up on welfare. So growing up on welfare impacted my life in profound ways, ways I didn't sort of understand back then because I was a kid. but. What happened was I I basically, at a young age, started to work to earn money if I wanted things because my parents didn't have the money, and I also started to steal. And no one taught me to steal. It was just an innate instinct, and I clearly remember the first time I did it. I was in a milk bar down the corner there with old Mr. Grotch, and when he turned his head to get something, the lollies on the counter, the little voice in the head, take it and I took it. Interestingly, that was prior to my father becoming an invalid pensioner, so we weren't poor. It was a moral kind of thing, if you like. Anyway, after the unfortunate um, loss of my father's job and all the rest of it, I then rationalized what I was doing. Like, it's okay for me to do this because I don't have the money. We're poor, and I deserve to have things like other kids. And look, to cut a long story short, I started stealing in small ways, and you know, most people steal something at some point when they're young, but in my case, I kept doing it. And not only that, I really enjoyed doing it, and I particularly liked stealing things that were difficult to steal. So, built into the process of stealing and getting something that you want was the planning of it, and then the execution of the plan. And there's a thrill in that, just the whole process of it.
0: That is very much the sort of MO of the armed robber, isn't its is There's a lot of ego involved. There's a lot of I'm smarter, I can outsmart people, I can outsmart the place that I'm robbing, whatever systems they have in place. I can outsmart the coppers and get away with it. There's a lot of ego involved in armed robbery. And you're right, there's a lot of dash. Most of us can conceive of a sneaky pinch maybe pinching something when no one's looking maybe, but not the idea of walking into a place and saying, all right, everyone, I'm here, I'm in charge, this is what's happening, give me the money.
2: That's right. That's right. Look, um, yeah, ego is involved, of course, even unconsciously. I mean, I didn't consciously think I'm better than them or I'm good. It was a process of how do I get the outcome that I want? How do I get the money that I need?
0: Just as we were talking then, I was thinking about other great stick-up men that I've known and they tended to have childhoods that disempowered them in one way or another. And I wondered if that ego, if, if ego is even the right word, if it's sort of a overcorrection of that, if there's a sense of wanting to have power, wanting to emba- empower themselves. And I wondered how much shame there was attached in your family to dad not being able to work. Uh, he must have felt... I'm assuming, being the kind of bloke that he was, a Greek immigrant who's brought his Mm. family to this country with every intention of working his guts out and giving them everything.
2: Oh, absolutely. And
0: then having an accident which deprived him of that. If he was ashamed, if there was a sense of shame around that.
2: Oh, look, I was too young to engage even thinking in, in those terms. But as I grew up, with the benefit of some perspective, I started to understand. And I think it hit home for me when I saw... Him when I was a teenager, and he was a uh, pathetic in the sense that he was just a tragic, sad man. I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, how do you occupy your day after day after day? It was like a prison sentence. His life was so boring and kind of meaningless. And so he'd do crazy things. Like once he was up the bloody fruit tree in the backyard, pulling leaves off the branches, and I said, What are you doing? And he said, Well, you know, they're going to fall soon. So I thought I'd pull him off something to do
0: yeah
2: do you know what I mean just something to do with your life so uh, i called him the invisible man because he wasn't really around not only was he sick he was on heavy medication he was a classical drug addict on prescription drugs mm. and and my father would have been absolutely humiliated he was a really proud man and he had a, a reputation in the village on the island where he grew up he had his own business you know he he, he did really well He had aspirations to start a business here and all of that, and it just all diminished. It all fell in a heap. And, you know, that experience, the whole experience, and the fact that he was sick long-term, and my mother was too, she she had her issues, that created dysfunction in our family.
0: Definitely. It sends a message, a really strong message, that like what is the point of playing by the rules, of working hard? Of It sends a lot of messages, doesn't it, about the point of, Doing the right thing and being patient and all of that.
2: Absolutely, and I have recollections of uh, a camera sort of over the back fence in the backyard when Dad was out there you know, tending his tomatoes and things like Greeks do, because he could do that. And what else was he going to do? And they were trying to sort of catch him. The insurance company had sent people around to try to try and prove this man that he was faking it. And in the end, he signed this document, as I said, and and that made me angry. I remember I was angry when I started to sort of understand all of this. And I thought, the system is, yeah, you know, that F word, and it summed it up beautifully. I was angry. And so that's another, even an unconscious reason that I justified for my behavior. The other thing was growing up, I quickly learned in some of the jobs I had that Adults seem to manipulate and use one another, would rip one another off. I learned that personally in a couple of jobs I had with some unscrupulous employees because we were kids. And I thought, okay, well, if you're trying to rip me off, then the game is such that I can rip you off. And if I can steal things, it's all about not getting caught. So planning things in a particular way, manipulating the other person, whatever, to achieve the end that you want. And that's how I started to think and behave. And at school, I was a really good kid. I did my homework and I was respectful to teachers and people like me and, and all of that. But I had this other side to me, this other side that was insecure and fearful and hung up about a whole bunch of issues and unfortunately didn't talk to anyone about them. That's one of the big things I drum into kids a lot. You need someone to talk to, to be real with. And so you start playing this game. You start acting a particular role. You keep stealing stuff. So I think in the end I was a bit of a kleptomaniac. Good Greek word, that. (laughs) And so my mindset was if there was something like opportunistic that you could take that had some value or that you wanted, you take it. And I stole some amazing things as a young person, let me tell you. I'll give you an example. I I was in the all-Melbourne secondary school sports when I was 15 because I was an athlete, you know, and I was pretty good. And I wanted to have a two-tone Adidas track suit. Yeah. Now they cost an arm and a bloody – and they still do. They still do. do, yeah. So who can afford those, kids whose parents have got money or you've got money? But even if I had the money, I thought – it's a rip-off, so why don't I just steal it and, and keep what money I have in my pocket for something else? And so then the question was, how do you steal a tracksuit from Maya when you know that there are store detectives there? You know, I'd work that out, and I can't remember whether they had cameras in those days. So I thought about it and thought about it, and um, as I learned in prison, necessity is the mother of invention. You heard that saying. And so eventually I came up with this plan. So what I did, I went to the local, I don't know, supermarket and they had a pile of boxes at the back and I found a box that was, I think it was for Coke cans, that size box. And then I went to the um, newsagent and I bought some wrapping paper and some ribbon and some sticky tape. And I covered the box so and put the ribbon around it so it looked like a beautiful gift. But on one end, I made a trapdoor and so I went into the department store there and looked around. I had the tracksuit. I had the, the gift supposedly in one arm and the tracksuit box in the other arm and looked around. The coast was clear. Wham! It was inside the gift box. And I just walked out. Well, I used that gift box until the wrapping started to sort of... <laughs> <laughs> and I stole so many things in it. And, you know, I thought, well, see good on you. You're clever. You found a way around it. But all that did was reinforce my criminal kind of thinking. Because that's crime, isn't it? It's crime. A kid yeah. might be doing it, but it's a crime. Yeah. And so you've developed a criminal mindset, if you like.
0: Yeah. And also the first time you robbed a TAB, it went smoother than you thought it would, didn't
2: it? Yeah. Look, coincidence comes into things. That particular day, And of course, I got the idea from watching TV where I saw a robbery being enacted of a bank. And I thought, wow, just think four minutes, three or four minutes, and all your financial issues are solved. But then I thought when the guys ran out of the bank and a cop killed them both, I thought, no, that's not a good... So how could you do that and not draw attention to yourself? I'd done drama at school and knew how to put makeup on and all that, so disguise myself And I remember looking at myself in the mirror thinking, wow, you look nothing like yourself. Well done. Good job. And in those days, I was in the city one day and an army disposal store looking into the window, and there they were, the implements of the trade. There was a balaclava, there were knives next to them, and next to the knives were a range of guns. Now, they weren't real guns. They were imitations, replicas, but they looked real. You can't buy them now because too many people... Use them for that reason. And so I bought the gun and I didn't need the rest because my modus operandi was different. Because if you run into a tab or anywhere with a balaclava, well, it's obvious what what you're there for. And so when I walked into the tab, and of course, as as you might know, there were a lot of tabs. That was the only way you gambled in those days, right? Uh, Unless you knew an SP bookie somewhere. And, And I remember I, I walked into the tab on a Saturday afternoon and it was packed and they had all those television sets and they were blaring races all over Australia and I thought, what am I going to do? Like, am I going to pull this imitation gun out of my calico bag and say, stick 'em them up? I can't do this. And uh, I've got to say, the adrenaline was gushing. And I went over to a window and sort of was staring out the window at the street lost in thought and I determined I couldn't do it. And I was honestly going to turn around and leave when I heard a voice behind me, and it was the manager. Unbeknown to me, I'd walked in just before closing time on a Saturday afternoon. They used to close late afternoon, around 4.30 or 5, and reopen a few hours later. I didn't know that. So I happened to walk in just before closing time. And the manager was at the door And all the others had left, but I didn't notice anything caught up in my own thinking and because of the blaring televisions. So suddenly there's him and me. It's easier. And I just stood there staring at him and he asked me again. He said, are you okay? Uh, We've closed. You have to go. And that's when I pulled the nozzle of the gun out of the bag. And you'd think that we had rehearsed it because he just sort of walked back around into the counter area I followed him, he pulled the drawer open, and I stood there looking at him, real professional me, and he said, have you got a bag? And I said, yeah, yeah, I've got a bag, (laughs) here it is. So he put all the money in, I took the 10 cent pieces, the 5 cent pieces, man, I took the copper, I took everything. Money was just flowing out of the bag. And then I happened to say to him, is that all there is? And if he'd said yes, I would have left. He said, there's a safe. And I said, a safe? Where? And he said, you're standing on it was a wooden floor and it was a trap door and I was standing right on it so I stepped off it he opened it up big vault combination he opens it up little calico bag that's where the bulk of the money was big notes now I got away in those days with around $12,000 which by today's standards I've calculated it on the internet would be around $65,000, somewhere in the vicinity. Wow. And when I got back to the flat where I was, I remember I counted it three times because I I couldn't comprehend this amount of money. I thought I might get five or six grand or something like that. And that was the beginning of the end. Once, Once I got that money, there was just no turning back.
0: How long did you sit there waiting to hear sirens or waiting to hear a bang at the door or, like, when did you really know you'd gotten away with it? That's what I, I'd i be worried about. I'd be thinking, surely someone's running after me.
2: Well, you, you think that, and and I, I had devised a plan to escape where I was going to swap cars. There was another party, well, my, my ex-girlfriend she knew what was going on and and she was waiting somewhere with a car and I was going to jump out of the car. I'd stolen some number plates. I'd used her car, but with different number plates and I was going to just swap cars and take off in my car. I used to have a Volksi and I didn't because the adrenaline was gushing so hard. I just wanted to get right out of there and I kept going and I met her back at the flat. Look, having gotten away and not seeing police anywhere, I thought, how can they trace me, right, logically, reasonably? A- and so I didn't think about the police again.
0: Well, wow, yeah. I guess um, you're young. This is what young men do. Young men just have this <laughs> spirit of adventure, Madness. I guess, fearlessness. Yeah. Uh, how old were you by this stage?
2: Just turned 21.
0: 21, 21. You're a young guy. How long till you did the next one?
2: About two and a half months. People say, why did you do another one so soon? And I said, say, because I was running out of money. And they say, how could you be running out of money? And I say, well, because I started spending like I was a multimillionaire. And by that stage, I was using drugs a lot, but my lifestyle was mad. I mean, I was living in a fantasy. I, I remember the day after the robbery, I took my girlfriend down to South Yarra, Parang, Chapel Street, right? Turak Road, all that those expensive boutique shops, and I I remember I went in and I said, I want that, and I want that, and I want that, and I I want you to make me these boots handmade, please, and I want this for her, and that Christmas I didn't work in the Milk Bar Delicatessen like I did since I was 15. I jumped on jets and went to Queensland and five-star hotels and, you know, just a crazy lifestyle. So the money um, started to disappear quickly, the second robbery was, of course, a lot easier than the first. I, I wasn't as fearful. The adrenaline was still there, pumping, but I knew that I could do it. And so I just targeted another TAB and um, went in and robbed it the same way. And it was just easy. I'd say, Excuse me, you know, I've, this is a robbery. I've got a gun. And the people would have oblige you. I mean, I'm sure they were trained not to resist someone who had a weapon or threatened them. And so it was sort of walk in, walk out. It was it was that easy. And so the second one then became, before the third one, there was one that didn't go quite right, where I walked in, said what I said, and the woman looked at me and started screaming. And I just hightailed uh, it out of there as quick as I could. And I shouldn't laugh about it, but I mean... Look, I was committing armed robberies, but I wasn't a bloody professional criminal. I was, I was a young bloke who'd stepped into something that was really serious. Didn't appreciate how serious it was. In my, see, in my mind, I was thinking, well, I can't, hurt, I'm not going to hurt anyone. All I want's the money.
0: And because the previous people had been so obliging, I guess it still wasn't sinking into you. No, and, no, but, you know, for that woman, and and again. Is a reminder to all of us that she doesn't know that you're just a young bloke who knows he's not going to hurt anyone. And victims never know that. And that is something that so many armed robbers get to a moment where they go, Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry, to all of those people. I screamed at them, get on the floor, and all that. You know, so many people get to a moment people who do house robberies, people who think, Oh, well, I'm not hurting anyone because there was no one home when I climbed in their window and took whatever I took, but the trauma that is associated with being a, attacked like that, being confronted like that and being put in that situation, you know, is brutal. But it's something that the offender often just does not calculate because they know what's going to happen and they know there's there's very no, little danger. There's no danger actually in the situation.
2: But there's also, Michelle, the unexpected, the things, yeah. I mean, I remember clearly one day listening to some young blokes in prison, and, and they were doing fairly short sentences, and I'd done three or four years at that point, point. and I said to them, oh, you're planning on a crime when you get what about the unexpected, the thing that could go wrong? And they said, no, it's not going to go wrong, we're, we're all planning this. And I said, but you're in jail, so something went wrong, so you're you're either not very good or you're a bit stupid or something. Um, And and that's the truth. Things can go wrong. I mean, when I was caught, things went wrong and I didn't expect what happened to happen.
0: Coming up on Australian True Crime, how much does crime pay? Arthur will tell us what he spent his ill-gotten gains on after the
1: break. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
2: Look, after what, seven months, I'd done three. I had two cars that I'd bought. I'd bought my girlfriend a sports car. And again, I was running out of money. So I thought, really blasé now. No fear at all. I'll just go... In fact, I was driving home and I remember it was about two or three in the morning and I was going through St Kilda Junction and I looked across and saw TAB and I just said, oh, I'll rob that tomorrow. Just like that. Whereas previously, I'd gone and sort of staked them and sort of walked in with sunglasses on or something just to check it out, see who the manager was, how do you get away, whatever. But now, no, just completely... Almost cocky, right, with confidence. Go and make a withdrawal. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So that particular day on the Saturday morning, I went to um, this hotel in Carlton, which I used as my base. I put my disguise on. Each time I did use a different disguise. So the first time I was a, a Vietnam veteran with an American accent, you know, bit deranged, you know, too many drugs uh, <laughs> in in Nam and telling the guy, you know, I'd sort of seen things and been in war and killed people.
0: Wow, that's very, very clever, isn't it? So that they'd they'd give a very different um, description to the coppers every time. Yeah, yeah,
2: but the modus operandi was the same. Someone would wait, see, this was the part, and and I didn't sort of think of that because I wasn't a crim. So the second robbery, I was a Frenchman, I went and got this sort of safari suit with a little straw hat with a feather in it, little goatee beard, moustache, and I changed the shape of my face, cotton wool and sponges in my mouth, up my nose, so I looked really different. The third one, I'm like a bloody mobster out of the 40s. I, I had this double-breasted pinstripe suit on I, 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 and a red velvet tie and I had a friggin' hat on. I remember I remember the detective who arrested me He said as he was taking me up the lift to the fifth floor of the armed robbery squad on Russell Street in those days and he said, you're the best dressed armed robber I've ever seen. <laughs> what, what were you dressed like that? And I said, oh, I don't I know. I hope they
0: didn't hang out the window in that outfit.
2: Well, he threatened to.
0: Oh, bet. <laughs>
2: oh, you know about hanging out the windows. I of do. course you do. Yeah, he threatened to and I bloody believed him too. I reckon he would have. You know, I don't know. what. Why did I do Talk about attracting, you know, attention to yourself. So, you know, I wasn't all there. By that stage, I, I wasn't well. I wasn't eating, sleeping. I was just drug-affected. I did – look, that particular day when I walked in, like every other time, I walked in, the people there, I went to this results board. I just made out that I was looking at the horse, the, the results, waited till everyone left, waited for the manager to come out behind the security enclosure and say blah, 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 and then, yeah, But on this occasion, everyone left, but the manager, who was a woman, didn't do that. She actually went to the phone, and I could hear her kind of whispering to someone, and I thought, who's she talking to? Now, in my deranged mind, I thought it was the post office. I don't know where that drugs. (laughs) You know, I mean, the post office was closed on Saturday afternoon. Go figure. So I wait around a few more minutes And she just hangs there. And then, instinctively, I knew something's wrong. Taking too long. Go. And as I turned to my left and took one step, a police divisional van pulled up out the front. Now, I hadn't done anything. She'd called them because what I didn't know, and they showed me this, they had these little poster things made, uh, and it was meant to look like me. It didn't really And it said something like, dangerous, do not approach, call police, blah, blah, blah. So I was a suspicious character, perhaps. And so they walked into the tab, and I retraced my step, and I'll never forget the feeling in my body. I've never had a sensation like that. My body went kind of hard. It was almost like I kind of crystallized, and I just froze. And all these thoughts were going through my head. And one of the police officers walked up behind me and gently sort of touched me on the shoulder and sort of drew me around and said, excuse me, sir, can we talk to you? And when he touched me, I shit myself, literally, literally in my pants. And I didn't realize that until I was chained to a table in the police headquarters there. So that was an extreme physical reaction. Now, that was loss of control. Now, in those few seconds when that happened, when he touched me and I panicked, I turned, he looked at me, I looked at him, he must have sensed something and he put his hand right on my sort of stomach and he felt the gun in my belt under the suit and his eyes kind of widened and that's when we started grappling and I'm trying to pull it out and he's trying to stop me. He tried to sort of trip me and he threw a leg at my leg and I pulled back and pushed him at the same time, and he fell on his backside right in front of me, and I pulled the gun out, the imitation, and it was a big gun. The other officer at that point was, had half withdrawn his thirty-eight service revolver. Which is very real. Oh, yes. Now, had he drawn his gun a fraction before me, I would have died, and you wouldn't blame him for going bang, 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 bang. But I got it out first and I threatened to kill his partner. I said, put your gun back or I'll kill him, something like that. So he put his gun back and that's when all I could think of was go. But I had sense enough to know that they had real guns and so I had to take their guns. So I said to the one on the ground, give me your gun. He said, I'm not allowed. And I pulled the trigger of my gun back and I said, if you don't. So he gave me his gun and this is where the judge was really dirty on me, that I had a loaded revolver and, again, I'll never forget, there are certain things you never forget, and this was so clear in my mind. I had my finger on the trigger and my whole body was shaking, shaking. So you stole
0: his very real gun then with your fakie. You had it at his head and you said, give me your gun, and then you held his real gun That's at right, I
2: did. And, I mean, if you can shit yourself in a panic-stricken state, I I could have pulled that trigger and he would have died because it was aimed right between his eyes and um, live with that, have that on your conscience. And and how many years? I would have done over 25 years, I reckon, killing a police officer.
0: Well, again, if you'd made it to Russell Street in those days, I mean, my God. Yeah,
2: that's another, exactly. Anyway, uh, I took his gun and then the other cop, I said, right, into the divvy van. I just wanted to go. My car was parked in a little lane around the corner, but I just wanted to get out of there. So he jumps in the divvy van. I jump in beside him.
0: (gasps) So you've kidnapped a bloody copper as well. A copper, that's
2: right. So I said, drive. And he said, I haven't got the keys. The policeman inside's got the keys. God. (laughs) So I I remember I stood there. I thought, what am I going to do now? I said, give me your gun. So I took his gun as well. So now I've got three guns. (laughs) I put his gun in my belt and I've got the other two guns in my hands and I jump out of the divvy van and I run back inside, but they've seen me coming. They've closed the security gate and they've run out the back of the tab. So I'm standing in the tab looking left and right. Then I ran out onto the street. The cop's just sitting in the car looking at me. And I ran down the street to the corner. And I remember there were people there who saw me coming with guns in my, you know, they're sort of going left and right, ran around the corner, jumped in. The little car that I had—it was a Triumph Spitfire, and it was a manual. And I flooded the bloody thing, and it's oh my and God. it's going, <sighs> and I'm sitting there, and you can just imagine, huh, the adrenaline, the like I was, bah! and I was just about to jump out, and I don't know, run, and it started, and it took off, and I couldn't breathe. I remember I was Bah-bah-bah! trying, and I was trying to pull the tie off and pulling the fake beard and moustache off and just taking big gasps of air and thinking, I'll never do that again, man, you know, they're onto me. And I crossed over Chapel Street and Dandenong Road intersection, and I'm heading sort of north along Chapel Street. And as I crossed over and kept going, this green Holden does a U-turn and it follows me. And I look in the rear vision and I see these two blokes in there with sort of collars and ties. And I'm thinking, are they cops? Are they detectives? I'll check. So I turned left at the first street, a one-way street, and they're right behind me. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. So I go all the way down and I, I had to turn left into Dandenong Road. And it went under the overpass of St Kilda Road there, if you know the area. And as I'm going along, there's like four lanes, and they came up alongside me. I'm in the left lane. They come up alongside me, and the policeman in the passenger side puts up a little sign saying police, and he's indicating pull over. I'm acting kind of dumb, like me, pull over. <laughs> <laughs> so I pull over. I pull over in the service lane, right? And they pull up, but they pull up about maybe 25, 30 meters behind because they know I've got guns. And they slowly walk either side of my car. They're approaching my car, and I notice the big fella <laughs> of the two, he pulls his jacket back, and he pulls out the biggest gun I've ever seen. It was a 357 Magnum. And as soon as I saw the gun, I just hit the accelerator, and off I go. So they jump in their car. They put a siren on the roof, and it starts wailing, <clears throat> But there's traffic, right? There's four lanes there. And as I'm approaching, I've done now a great big circle and I'm back where I started, Chapel Street and Dandenong Road, and I notice up ahead there's police cars across the road blocking the lanes except for one lane just to let traffic. I
0: mean, this is, by the way, this is Saturday evening in the middle of Paran. Like this is, for, for anyone who doesn't know Melbourne, this is like, this is a very busy suburb, but also on a Saturday evening, it's always been, it's it's a going out kind of place. There's restaurants, there's pubs, there's nightclubs. That's right. And again, we know now, we know you, you're a nice guy. We're enjoying your company, but no one else knows that. All they know is you're a guy who's just tried to knock over a TAB and you've got
2: guns. That's right.
0: Like for these coppers, they're just thinking, is this bloke going to start shooting people?
2: That's right.
0: How do we handle this situation? Exactly. My God. Okay. So you're approaching this roadblock in the middle of Paran on a Saturday evening. And you've shot yourself ages yeah, yeah, ago, that's by the way. Right. <laughs> so this that's is right.
2: Like- and I'm weaving through the traffic and I get right to the front of all this traffic where the opening is. And the cops see me and they know it's my car, but I just go through and they all scatter, right? So, and then I turn left again and I go down Chapel Street again. And I turn left at the same bloody street. I, you know, I'd, I'd lost it. Doing this big lap. Big lap. Meanwhile, they all jump into their cars and they're after me. So at one point, I remember I, I looked in the rear vision and I remembered thinking, is this really happening? This is like a movie. And I kept thinking, they're chasing you. You know, they're going to catch you. I'm trying, like, this particular car that I had that day was only a 1300. If I'd had me Alpha, I would have probably killed myself because that, that went fast. And they're trying to overtake me and it was a divvy van. There were two divvy vans and the detectives ended up about three or four cars behind, which was fortunate because they're trying to overtake me and I'm going right and blocking them and they're going left and they're going right. And eventually one of them just roared past me and slammed the brakes on side on and I couldn't get through. So as my car was still moving, I jumped out with my guns, gun in each hand. Of course. Gun in my bolt which I was paranoid was going to go off and blow me balls off, and and I start running. I just run. And there were housing commission flats there on stilts, and there were quite a few of them, I remember, and in the middle of these housing commission flats was an open park area, and there were people there. It was a sunny day and the kids were playing in the swings and people were there walking around, and I'm running right through. So I go under the stilts through the park and that's when I heard, STOP! And then I heard, BANG! BANG! Two shots. And I stopped and I put my hand straight up, gun in each hand. (laughs) And people, I remember everyone hit the deck. Parents were grabbing kids and throwing them on the ground. Everyone just hit the deck. And as I stood there with my arms up, they were warning shots by the way. The Police fired them up in the air. I remembered, thinking about my family, my parents, and it hit me, and I started to run again. And as I ran, I heard four more shots. Now, the detective who eventually dealt with me told me, there were two warning shots when you kept running because you were armed. The next four were aimed at you. And he said to me, I'll never forget, he said, you are only so lucky that it wasn't me firing because we weren't immediately behind you. It was a couple of uniform police, and they've got 38s, and over 20 or 30 metres or whatever, they're not very accurate. If I'd been shooting, he said, you wouldn't be here. And I believed him. I remember there was a low fence, and I tried to sort of go over the top, and I clipped it, and I hit the ground, rolled around. And as I was about to get up, I heard a voice And the voice said, move, and I'll blow your fucking head off. And I turned around, and there was a policeman. It might have been the detective, I can't remember, standing in that sort of arm position, holding the gun, the wrist and all that. And if I'd tried something, he would have shot me. And I just put my hands up. And I was bundled up dragged across. They just ripped my shirt open. You know, The jacket went off. The zip broke. They pulled my pants down around my ankles, threw me up against the divvy van, handcuffs really tight on the back. I'm like, take it easy. And as I sort of sat there, like trying to comprehend what was going on, I I was completely blown away. It was surreal. It really was. It didn't feel like it was real, but it was. And as I'm sitting there, I hear... A police officer trying to hold back the policeman whose gun I'd taken. He was trying to hit me, and he was, and they were holding him back, saying, "Not here. There's, there's people here." And and I was saying, "I'm sorry, it wasn't real. You know, my gun wasn't real." And then I hear a voice say, "Ah, oh, you, you stink." And I looked around, and it was this quite pretty blonde haired police officer. And I thought, oh, that's a bit rude. What are are you saying that to me for? You know, (laughs) I I think you're nice. Why are you being so rude to me? Yeah, that was, I'd lost the plot. And then they obviously put me in the back of the divvy van, took me to Russell Street and up we went.
0: Thank you to our guest on this episode, Arthur Bolkus. Arthur will join us on the next episode of Australian True Crime 2 when we go into his experiences in prison, including a couple of stints in Pentridge. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 YARN on 13 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it.
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
0: Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp.